1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 to 25. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honour, especially those who labour in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the labourer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also, good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Now, for our visitors, uh, we, we work our way through whole books of the Bible. So today um, we're up to, uh, we, we've been working our way through 1 Timothy and we're up to chapter 5. And today we're going to be talking about leadership in the church, uh, particularly elders. Um, but like most of this letter to Timothy, what, while it's written and its directions for Timothy, it's much more than that. It, it's meant for the whole church to hear and to know and to understand. And so some of you might be thinking, well, I'm not an elder. I don't need to worry about this. But no, there's lessons here for all of us. And, and we need to apply these in whatever situations we are in. So he's talking about good leadership. And the way that he connects it into the flow of the letter is with the concept of provision. Right? So, so the church provides for particular leaders. And last week, we were talking about widows and how widows who are truly widows, godly women who are now all alone and there's no family to care for them, they are to be honoured. And how is this honour expressed? By the church making provision for them and providing for them. And so he moves now onto the topic of elders, um, the spiritual leaders in the church, and he says that these should be worthy of double honour. Right? So if the church is providing for godly women who are now all alone and elderly and, and there's no one to provide for them and they can't provide for themselves, we have this principle of good provision. But it should also be applied to the elders. Uh, but not all elders. He says, especially those who labour in preaching and teaching. Now, the word that we translate as, as especially there, uh, the Greek word is actually melista, and, and it can mean especially, but it can also mean, you know, that is, or I mean these ones, right? It's the same word that he used back in chapter 4, verse 10, when he said that Jesus is the saviour of all people, especially those who believe, right? So he's not saying back there that that Jesus is the saviour of everyone, including unbelievers. It doesn't mean that everyone's saved, even unbelievers, but then believers are, are extra especially saved. 
No, what, what he's saying is more of a qualification statement. So we understand it as Jesus is the saviour of all people, right? That is, he's the saviour of all people who are believers. And we're meant to understand it in the same way here. Uh, it's not all elders, it's not all spiritual leaders in the church who get paid. We, we provide, provide for those who labour in preaching and teaching. And, and Paul clarifies what he's saying with, with Scripture. He says... Because scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it's treading out grain. And the labourer deserves his wages, right? So an elder who labours in preaching and teaching the gospel, some, a person that we would call a pastor today, should be fairly provided for. Now, I've said this before, um, just about every time this topic comes up. I personally am very reluctant uh, to talk about how a church needs to be providing for its pastor. Why? Well, obviously, it looks very self-serving when the bloke up the front starts giving that message. But over the years, I've, I've had to get over myself with that um, because my job is to teach God's word. And so when it comes up in his God word, God's word, my job is to teach what it's saying, no matter what it's about. Um, and I'm actually pretty happy with how Paul addresses this. Back in chapter 3, verse 3, he left us with no, no illusions, right? Paul, Paul is dead against those money-grubbing preachers that, that are in some churches. He says that, that church leaders are to not be lovers of money. But the flip side of that is it's not uncommon for a church or for people in the church to want to keep their pastors poor. And that's not what Paul's aiming for either. The, the picture that he's giving here is fair provision for those who serve. Now, it's always interesting what, what a person's concept is of fair provision. A couple of weeks ago uh, at Pistol Club, I'm not even sure how this topic came up because I sort of, I was doing something else and came in onto the topic halfway through. So I guess they're probably having a go at me because they usually are. Um, but they're talking about when the plate gets passed around at church. And there was one bloke there that said when he got married, the priest had the hide to tell him how, how much he should donate. And, and it was at least $20, he was told. He said, I know $20 doesn't sound like much money, but, but back then it was a fair bit of money. And I, I know how old this bloke is and about when he would have got married. And I'm thinking, yeah, probably would have been about 10% of his wage that, that the priest had said, you should, you should donate to the church because we're marrying you. Um, and... It, and then I'm sort of, and he's thinking, oh, that's terrible. That why, why would you ever need to give that much money? And I'm thinking, I wonder how much time and effort the priest put in. And I know that because I know how long it takes to prepare for a wedding, and it would take at least a day out of his week, you know, to um, to to do a bit of to visit them and do a bit of marriage prep with them and prepare for the marriage ceremony itself and to do the paperwork that you have to do before and the paperwork you have to do after. It would take at least a day out of his week plus the day of the wedding itself and back then it would have been expected that the preacher, the priest had to also go along to the reception. So that'd be pretty much at least two days out of his week. And old mate was pretty cranky that it was suggested that he should donate $20 to cover it. Um, anyway, I sort of come in onto this and I said, look, not all churches are like that. Not, not all churches tell people how much money they, they have to give. I mean, 
I said, we, we don't even take up an offering. We've just got a box that's sitting down the back, and I'm just looking. Oh, no, it is there. Right? Don't miss it, everybody. Ka-ching! Um, <laughs> and I said, look, we've got a box sitting down the back, and most weeks there's between zero and $50 in that box. And um, some weeks more. Uh, I can't think of any time where there was ever less. And um, <laughs> oh, somebody got it. <laughs> We were talking this morning about how when, when we have recorded sermons, we, we need to have a laughter track to put in so that everybody knows it's time to laugh, everybody. Um, but, um, but I said, to them, look, we don't tell anyone how much to give. In fact, most of our givers just do it with direct debit. We don't even, it, it doesn't even, there's no show. It just turns up there and it supports. And, and I said, in fact, a large portion of our income is actually coming from those who listen to our online messages. Um, and not from, not from our locals. Um, these people are supporting their own churches where they are, plus they're supporting this ministry because they value the biblical teaching that they're getting from it. And I find this very humbling. Now, many churches give a message on giving every single week, usually just before the offering's taken up to remind you that you've got to put money in the offering. And often that, that message will go along the lines of, you put $1,000 in the offering and God will give you $2,000 back. Um, we don't do that. Um, but we do talk about it as often as what God brings it up in his word. And so we do need to talk about it today. Why do disciples of Jesus willingly give to the ministry of the church? It's so we, the church, can do what God has called us to do. It's so that we can provide for those in our midst who truly have nothing. It's so that we can provide, make fair provision for those who labour in preaching and teaching the word of God. And it's to cover the cost of simply being the church. And as we give of our money, this is actually an act of worship in, in itself. And people will often ask, talk, want to talk to me about, well, how much, how much should we give? And, and a lot of people come up with the concept of a tithe. Uh, that's the Old Testament principle. The Old Testament principle is a tithe, which means 10%, a tenth. Um, now, and a lot of people like to think that they're giving a tithe, but most people who think they're tithing are not, because a tithe is actually 10% of gross income. If you look at, that, at it in the Old Testament, yeah, if you, if you bred 10 calves, one of them would go to God. Um, and so a lot of people might think, oh, but I'll, I'll give 10% of my taxable income or 10% of my income after tax. Well, that's fine. Just don't call it a tithe because it's not a tithe unless it's 10% of gross. And, and so you might say to me, but Michael, okay, is there any other options? That sort of sounds a bit too much, right? Well, that is the Old Testament principle. The New Testament principle is actually a bit more than that. It's what we call sacrificial giving. And sacrificial giving is what I was reminded of the other day at Pistol Club. Because old mate realised that, oh wow, for me to give a donation of 20 bucks, which was probably 10% of his income, I'm, I'm going to notice that missing. It's there's going to be something that I'm going to have to go without because I'm, because I'm giving. And as a non-Christian, he couldn't make sense of that. So you know what? As Christians, we give sacrificially. This is what we do. 
when we love God with everything we have, um, we give sacrificially, and yes, we will notice it missing. And I want to throw out all that rubbish about, you know, the, it's given as the hard sell, the prosperity theology thing, where, yeah, you put, you put $200 in and God will give you $400 back, as if it's turning our, our offering to God into some kind of get-rich-quick scheme. That's, that's not what it's meant to be at all. It's about us sacrificing and giving of ourselves back to God. Um, and so when we give, we will notice it missing. There will be things that, that you would like to save up for and buy that is going to be harder to save up for and buy because you're giving. And you know what? When we're giving enough that we notice it missing, that's when it's something which will be significant in a significant help for, for the ministry of the church. At, at our last congregational meeting, we mentioned that it's probably time after nine years of setting up church each week in various halls, it's probably time for us to start thinking about buying a simple building for us to use as a church. You know what? If we were all giving sacrificially, we could easily do that. And it is through those who are giving sacrificially now um, that our church can afford to pay me four days a week. And I'm very aware of this. Like, there's not many churches as small as this one that can afford to pay a pastor four days a week. I've seen big churches, far, far bigger than this, that can't afford to keep a pastor um, simply because people are not giving sacrificially. And yes, it, I see it as a double honour to be provided for. So let's move on. We now move from good provision to good behaviour, which is one Granny B picked up on there with the report cards. I would have liked to, to have compared the, the sevens and the sixes and the fives and seen who was the smartest at school. Mm. Oh, that wasn't today's lesson. Okay. Um, so, in the eyes of the world, how a church leader behaves will either give Jesus a good name or more often give him a very bad name. And the reason that, that it's more often gives Jesus a bad name is because people in the world don't want to notice when people in the church do good things. Um, but they're very quick to notice and very quick to condemn when church leaders do evil things. And that's why it's really important that when we choose elders, that they be godly men. Verse 24 says, The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. And you know what that's like, don't you? Like, like there's some people, you, you meet them and think, yeah, they're, they're okay. Yeah, they're not bad. But then over time, they don't turn out to be quite as nice as what you once thought that they were. Because the, 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 the veneer of godliness that they got painted on the outside starts peeling back. And you start seeing the person for what they're really like. And sometimes a person can keep their sins hidden for years, but, but on the day of judgment, everything that's hidden is going to be revealed. And the Lord will judge. But when we're choosing good leaders, 
This is why we don't rush into laying on of hands, right? So now when he talked about laying on of hands, that's when we're appointing someone as a leader. We lay hands on them and we pray for them that, that God would pour his Holy Spirit out upon them and, and help them in this leadership position that they're being put into. And so we come to good order. Verse 22 says, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Basically, what he's saying is be careful which horse you hitch your cart to. All right? When a new person comes to our church, we do not rush in to place them into leadership positions. We take our time. We take time to get to know them. We get, take time to learn wh where they're at with God. Uh, what to learn what they believe and, and, and how what they believe shapes what they do and, and how the Holy Spirit is, is transforming you to become more like Christ. And so we look at things like spiritual fruit in their lives and their godliness or lack thereof and what they say, what, what sorts of things they speak of because what comes out of the mouth is an indication of what's in the heart. Now, we, we, we have some... Um, we usually try to get to know newer folk and we have them over to, to lunch and, and have a chat with them. And um, so the last couple of times I've done this, the people have said to me, what is this, an inquisition or something? It's like, because uh, I just keep asking them questions, probing where you're at with God, you know, and, and what's, how did you come to faith? And I want to know everything that I can about you because you're my brother or sister in Christ and I want to know. Now, some churches are the opposite to that, are very quick to promote a newcomer into leadership. And, and I think sometimes it is um, a way of holding on to a person. Right, well, if we put you straight into a ministry, then you, you're stuck here. Right? You, you can't got the freedom to just go. You're going to have to be here every week. And we don't do that. Simply because God's word says not to. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. You see, if we were hasty and if we ended up putting the wrong person into leadership, whatever sin, whatever godliness, godlessness, whatever wrong teaching they were responsible for bringing into the church, it would be on us simply because we didn't do what God said and we were hasty. Righto. So what about when a church does end up with a bad leader. You guys should know. What, what it, <laughs> another laughter thing comes in there. Um, instead of going, hmm, that's concerning, yeah. But it happens often enough, doesn't it, that you end up with a bad leader in a church. So let's talk about good justice. The biblical model for dealing with sin in the church is the same whether a person is a leader or whether they are not a leader. Leaders are not to be shown partiality simply because they're leaders. But nor should leaders ever be judged on hearsay or unfounded accusations. There has to be good justice. The process for dealing with sin in the church, it comes from the teaching of Jesus himself. If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault, just between the two of you. 
And if he doesn't listen, then take two others along as, as witnesses. And if he still doesn't listen, tell the whole church. And if he still doesn't repent of his sin, have nothing to do with him anymore. He's not welcome in the fellowship anymore. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, we learn that the purpose for shunning an unrepentant sinner is so that they will be ashamed of their unrepentance and that they will turn and seek forgiveness. And in verse 20 of today's reading, we learn that the public nature of doing this is to be an example. It has to be out in the open. Uh, verse 20 says, For those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Right? It's, it's to be an example. Now, sadly, there have been many, many, many cases where the church has historically ignored, ignored God's word and swept bad behaviour under the carpet. Uh, they've done it as a PR exercise. Oop, nothing to see here. No, no, nothing here. We're not going to let you know about that. I oh, know it's rumours. No, 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 it's all okay. It's still dealt with. Nothing to see here. Gets dealt with as a PR exercise and in the long run, it ends up being a PR disaster. We don't want anyone to know about it. Um, there's nothing to see here. And sometimes they move offending leaders on to another location and they just do the same thing all over again. Or the, the offending person just gets quietly dismissed from leadership. They move town and they're never seen or heard from again. And people locally just go, I wonder what happened to so-and-so. I don't know, he was here one week, gone the next. The... The institutional child abuse inquiry has revealed some truly horrible, horrible things in many institutions, including some churches. And that should have never happened in the church. And it wouldn't if churches hadn't have been following the, the directions clearly laid down in scripture. For justice to be good, it has to be true. And so verse 19 says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. For justice to be good, it has to be visible. Verse 20 says, and for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. For justice to be good, it has to be impartial. In the presence of God and, and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Now, partiality, sorry, impartiality and the presumptions of innocence until proven guilty, it's been the bedrock of our Western court systems. Did you know it's a product of our Christian heritage? Um, it comes from right here in Scripture. But even before this, it, we find it in the Old Testament where, where God tells the Israelites how they are to do justice. But there comes a problem because things seem to be changing today. And if certain allegations get made today, especially of a sexual nature, uh, the assumption has become guilty 
on the word of one witness. And that leaves a potential for terrible injustices when false allegations are made. We saw it happen in our own nation not so long ago. Cardinal George Pell was convicted on the words of one witness when another witness had said exactly the opposite, um, but he was now no longer living. And he had to actually go to two separate courts of appeal until his sentence was overturned by the High Court. It's, it's happening again in our current system. Um, the current Brittany Higgins case of he said, she said, uh, hasn't yet been heard in the courts, but, or well, it's actually just supposed to have just begun, but they've had to stop it because some media are treating it as if it, there is a presumption of guilt because one person must be believed at all costs. Now, how do we as a church deal with that? How do we as leaders in the church deal with that? Robin and I have always been aware that, that Satan will target and accuse church leaders. Um, and I hear of prominent church leaders who get caught out in their sin. You know what? They should never put themselves in a place where, where that even an accusation can be made or where they would get tempted as such. That's why Robin and I, we agreed right when I first started ministry, what is it, 17 years ago now or longer? Longer, she says. We agreed that if I ever had to visit a young lady, either Robin comes with me or I take another lady from the church, or I meet her in a public place like a park or a cafe, or if they turn up uninvited, unexpected to visit me at my place, we've, we've got a little table and a couple of chairs out at the front door, out on the front veranda, where anyone who passes by can see. Everything's out in the open, so there can be no unfounded accusations that could possibly stick. And you know what? As disciples of Jesus, for every one of us, this is the way we should all live. In, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3, he said, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. The, the NIV says there shouldn't even be a hint of it. Right? As disciples of Jesus... Let's never put ourselves in a position where somebody might see something and, and draw either the right conclusion or the wrong conclusion and therefore give Jesus a bad name because our purity has been called into question. You see, this is bigger than what people think of you. You mightn't care what people think of you. This is what people think of Jesus. How we behave, what people think of us, reflects on Jesus. Let's move on. Paul's been saying, keep yourselves pure. Uh, but the purity he's talking about, uh, it isn't a form of asceticism, that, that's self-denial. Um, that there's a, a verse stuck in here that sort of seems oddly out of place. Um, but this is why. Some folk believe that it's what they do with their bodies that makes them pure or impure, right? So some folk believe that if they drink any alcohol, that would make them impure. Some feel that if they take particular medicines or inoculations, then that would make them impure. And so Paul has a word to Timothy about good health. 
And he simply says, take your medicine. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Righto. Let's wrap it up. We've been talking about leadership, but it's not only about leaders. I want to finish with verse 25, which is about good works. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, you're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. As, as disciples of Jesus, as we follow Jesus, he will lead us into good works. There is no doubt about that. As you follow Jesus, he will be leading you into good works. And in a world of darkness, good works are conspicuous things. They stand out like light in a dark room. And yet we don't do it to draw attention to ourselves. Remember, we're told that, you know, if you if you right hand does something good, don't let your left hand know that you're doing it. You know? We don't do it to draw attention to ourselves. The good that we do brings glory to our Father who is in heaven. The thing is, as we quietly follow Jesus, there might be things that, that cost us dearly and nobody else is ever going to know about them. You might quietly give to the poor and you don't tell anybody what you've done. Nobody knows about it. God knows. Or you might go and mow the lawn for the widow and you've given up your own free time or maybe you've given up your own money-earning time to go and do that. But you haven't told anyone about it. And no one knows. God knows. You see... Even good works that do go unnoticed cannot remain hidden. On the day that Jesus returns, everything's going to be revealed. Everything, all the good and all the evil. The wicked will be punished for every sin. And every evil deed that has not yet come to light, it'll be revealed and it'll be judged on that day. Likewise, the righteous will be vindicated. Every good thing that has been done that, that nobody knew about, it'll be revealed and it'll bring glory to our Father in heaven. And every person who's been wrongly accused will be justified for all to see. But the greatest thing is our Lord, the one for whom we wait, the one for whom we toil, he will have come. And he will be glorified on that day. And so good leadership is about bringing glory to God. Good provision, good behaviour, good order, 
good justice, good health, good works. Not, not for our own glory, not for our own self-aggrandizement, but for the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this thing we call the church. Lord, at times it, it, we get so frustrated when we see evil in the church. But there's, it's more often than that that we forget to give you glory for the wonderful things that you are doing through your church. And Lord God, we pray for the leadership in this church. We pray for our elders who we have. Lord, we thank you for them. And Lord, we ask that, that these godly men would, would be able to, to do their job with, with all honour and justice and integrity. And Lord, we pray that as we approach a, a time where we will be looking for new elders, Lord, we pray that you would raise up men of, godly men of integrity for this purpose, Lord. And Lord, we pray that, that everything that we do in this church, um, that as we worship you with our words, as we worship you with our actions, as we worship you with our offerings, as we worship you with every part of our lives, Lord, we pray that you would be glorified. We pray that nothing that, that we do, that no sin of ours would, would, would be reflected badly on God. Lord, help us uh, to do the tough things, that when there is sin, to be able to, to repent openly of this, such that nothing is hidden. And we pray that our Lord would be glorified in all we do. In Jesus' name, amen.